Well, uh, whether we're immediately aware of it or not, uh, there is a pressing sense in which all of us as humanity have a lingering question in our hearts, and, and that question tends to be something along the lines of where will fullness of life be found? Uh, at first, this question can affect us in somewhat positive or at least motivating ways. Maybe early on in our lives, career success can be presented as our hope for, for fullness of life. If you just get the right education and then get into the right profession, then the, the hope for fullness of life, the completeness of life you desire will be yours. That'll be realized. Uh, and then maybe about that same time, we look for meaningful relationships. If I just had that one person or if I had that specific group of friends in my life, then things would be whole. Uh, and as much as both careers and relationship ambitions sound compelling, uh, we do know that they soon prove to leave us still wanting. So the next thing that comes along in life maybe is something like political ideology. If you, if you just set yourself on a specific path, promoting and embracing a certain model for social or political change, give money there, give time there, uh, then if, if that can get underway, then fulfillment will be found. Uh, but then again, when, when ultimate hope for life is set up along these lines, uh, we do know that fulfillment is not found. Uh, political and social interests, as important as they can be, they still leave us empty in an ultimate sense. And so at some point in life, it's not uncommon for a shift to take place. And instead of the question, where will fullness of life be found? Instead of that question uh, being a driving motivation for us in terms of maybe career or relationship pursuits. Instead, at some point, that question, uh, instead of helping us uh, pursue flourishing and things of that nature, it actually can become a depressant in our lives. Um, so, so instead of looking for fulfillment, we can start to move toward, toward things that, that deaden and distract us from the hard truth that the life we hope for, the fullness that we've hoped for and imagined, actually isn't coming to us like we expected it to come to us. So careers become stressful instead of meaningful. Relationships uh, become hurtful instead of only, instead of only uh, loving and, 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 and self and, and concern for, for one another. Political concerns, obviously, they return broken dividends. We know these things. And, and, and so as we get to a certain point in our lives, these things can happen. Instead of that, that question, where will fullness of life be found? Uh, instead of that serving as a kind of compulsion in life, all of a sudden it serves as a depressant. And we start to look for a distraction from the reality that things just aren't what we expected them to be. And so, so the Beatles, they can sing that song that you, you, you might know. You know. Yesterday, you remember this song? Yesterday, all my troubles seem so what? So far away, right? Now it looks as though they're here to stay. So, so all of us, it is, it is human to desire the fullness of life, but that fullness tends to elude us. We look for it, we search for it, we wonder where it can be found, but we so often find ourselves wanting. And as we come to our study in John's gospel, what we discover is that John the apostle who writes the, this account, he knows this need that we have. In fact, in chapter 20, he makes it very clear that he's writing so that his reader can find true life. Uh, and, and, and that true life, which John is speaking about, it's not a fullness of life that's centered on, on something that we must uh, get together or figure out or achieve for ourselves. But instead, that fullness of life is something that comes to us through a person. It comes to us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John is introducing us to this Jesus who is the very light of life, he says. He's the very source of life that we have. 
John's been telling us that it's through Christ all that comes into existence exists. Christ is the one who comes into the darkness from the glories of eternity. And rather than the darkness of this world overwhelming him, he's the one who stands against the darkness and the darkness doesn't overtake it. John's told us that those who receive Jesus, for those who believe in his person, who he is and what he's done, there's life to be found in his name. So our great need as humanity, we know, is to find true life, find the fullness of life. John knows this. And from his first 18 verses of introduction, and then all really through the gospel, John is about the business of saying to us, that life that we're all longing for, that life that we're looking for, that life that we all desperately need is located in the person of Jesus. And in an especially unique way this morning, we can see how that can be useful to us because we live in a world where meaning is presented as, as being present and ever ready for us in all kinds of different places. And we feel the pressure of that. If we, if we can just find this particular niche in our career, then meaning will be found or if family life looks a certain way. And we find ourselves wondering, where, where is the meaning in all of this? We can find ourselves at the end of our energy, at the end of searching for purpose, finding that what we've hoped in hasn't proved to be the hope that we've been searching for. And John comes to us and he says very simply, let me just say something to you about Jesus. Let me tell you about this one in whom the fullness of life can be found. And so and so what we're going to do is we're going to consider, uh, continue to sit under John's introduction to, to his gospel, this introduction to Jesus as he's bringing us through the prologue of his gospel. We're near the conclusion now. Um, uh, last week, we spent time just on the first part of verse 14, where we were told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, so, so there, John was relaying the magnificent truth that God the Son, who is uh, from eternity past, the creator and life giver of all, uh, he's existing in eternal communion with God as God. God the Son has come down. The word became flesh. He's taken frail humanity to himself, uh, not at the expense of his divine identity, Jesus is still fully God, but he empties himself of his glorious position in heaven by taking to himself full human identity in order to identify with us in our weakness. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us, John says. And so if you remember from last week, we mentioned how that word dwell translates a Greek word for tabernacled that takes us back to images of the Exodus account where, where God had delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, you remember. And, and even though they quickly forget the Lord's instruction and build a golden calf and worship that golden calf in the wilderness, even still, instead of rejecting Israel because of their sin, the Lord comes to be present with them. Moses is directed to build this tabernacle. And there the glory of the Lord comes down, st still with a, a great degree of separation. There's the Holy of Holies and, and, and all of the structure around all of that. But the glory of the, of the presence of the Lord comes to rest amid his people in that tent of meeting. So the, the Lord's glory tabernacled in, in, a, in a separated but still very present kind of way in the Exodus. And now what John has told us is that something even better has happened. So now it's not just a manifestation of the glory of the Lord in, in the tabernacle that's present, but in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Lord himself has now come, and, and he uses the word tabernacle as a verb. He's actually tabernacled with us. In the coming of the Lord Jesus, God has come. He's come into the world as a person. He's, his presence is manifest among humanity. There's not any separation for us. 
uh, but now he's come in total identification with us. God's come in this way. And even as we reflect on that reality, it presents us with, with an amazing truth and that God's glory does not remain separated from sinful, broken, and rebellious mankind, but instead he comes near to us, he comes near to live among us. And, and just this alone is such a big truth, and we, we took some time to try and reflect on that last week. And so we won't uh, go into a, a whole lot there this morning, except that we can just add to what we talked about last week and say this one, this one brief thing. Here we have the glory of the Lord coming to dwell among sinful humanity. Often in our Christian life, we can feel that as we're wavering in sin, as temptation gets the better of us, we can feel as though we are no longer in a place of turning to God because we feel the tension of that separation that sin causes. We feel the, the, the weightiness of that, the burden of that, the guilt of that, and we find ourselves almost seeking to distance ourselves from God. When that temptation sets in, the prayer life tends to dwindle, the, the scripture reading goes away, even the fellowship with God's people can kind of wane just because we feel that, we, that the distance is somehow appropriate. And in a sense, what we're feeling is proper. Sin does distance us from God. But what we have to see in the gospel and in the person of Jesus Christ, instead of that actually being what compels us to go away from God, the, the fact that we have fallen into temptation, the fact that sin does uh, get a grip on our hearts at times, instead of that driving us away from God, one thing that this, this gives us a picture of is that God is actually the one who comes to us in that condition. So instead of feeling like we have to run away, get distance, be removed, instead we ought to see this is God who comes and dwells among us in our need, in our darkness, in our felt concern and rebellion and separation from us, he's the one who actively pursues presence with us. So even as we navigate temptation in our lives and what it looks like to truly repent, to turn back, the incarnation, he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, he's the one who comes to us in our need. We don't need to flee from him, we need to flee to him. And that's something that's, that's punctuated here, even in the language. Sinful Israel, God comes and he tabernacles among them. It's an amazing truth, manifest climactically in the coming of Christ. And so there's, there's gospel encouragement for us to have in that, uh, which, which, we'll, which we'll have there, and then we'll, we'll continue to move through this morning, because this morning what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, to keep thinking about what John tells us about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. We're going to consider some of the further details that John gives us here. And, and as we do, we do want to remind ourselves of John's purpose in all of this, and that he's speaking to us, not for the sake of merely piquing our religious interests or even satisfying obscure theological curiosities. But, but John is speaking to us about Jesus coming, as he says in chapter 20, so that we can believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, we can have life in his name. So, so where will the fullness of life be found? John's writing this to us about Jesus so that we can trust in him and find uh, what true life really is. And so that's the direction we go as we consider these verses this morning. Uh, we're going to just make it through the rest of verses 14 and 15 today. I'll just keep putting 14 to 18 in the bulletin. Eventually, it will be true. Um, but we're going to make it through verse 14 and 15 today. For the rest of the prologue, I'll give you an outline for up to verse 18. Uh, we, we have glory witnessed, which we're going to speak about today. And then next week, or, and maybe the week after, we'll see how far we get, we also have grace provided and we have God revealed. So glory, witness, grace provided, God revealed. That's, that's where we're going in all of this. Although, again, today we're just going to make it through glory witnessed. 
glory witness. So if you haven't yet, you can open your Bible, even as familiar as this may be uh, for, for some of us. It's good to follow along in the scriptures as we study just as a matter of habit. Um, so if you look at verse 14, uh, we'll begin by thinking about this idea of witness, witness. The theme of witness will be prominent in the Gospel of John. We've talked about how John likes the number seven, which reflects a number that indicates completeness. There are seven signs in John's Gospel. There are also seven unique groups of witnesses in John's Gospel. Witness is a major theme in, in uh, John's record here. Um, and, and we've already actually seen how witness has shown up earlier in chapter one when we were told back in, chap in verse seven uh, that John the Baptist was a witness testifying about Christ. So that was back in verse 7. Now here the witness theme, it continues to be present. And we get this from verse 14 where we have that statement, we observed His glory. Uh, we, we observed. Literally the text just reads, we saw His glory. The, the term that's used there is one of two basic Greek words for physically seeing with our eyes. Right? It's, a, it's a different word than what would describe a, a spiritual vision or revelation, for example. Right, John doesn't have in mind here a kind of mere spiritual understanding or beholding an experience of a vision or something like that. Instead, he's concerned to communicate that physical seeing has taken place and what has been seen is his glory, Christ's glory. In other words, the glory of the word made flesh is what has been genuinely physically observed by John the apostle and by others. Um, so John's saying the glory of Jesus Christ in the flesh is what we have seen. And that helps us understand who the we is here in verse 14. You and I haven't seen the glories of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Right? We're not eyewitnesses to Jesus' incarnation. But John the Apostle is. And so is John the Baptist who's going to come up in verse 15. We'll bring him up into this. So, so, so this we who saw the glory of the incarnate Christ, this we is a, it's a closed set of people. It's the eyewitnesses to Jesus. Uh, and, and next week, we'll actually see down in verse 16, John differentiates because by the time we get to verse 16, John will talk about how we all received grace, received grace upon grace from Christ's fullness. We all, right? The we all is more comprehensive and includes all of us. It's a reference to all of us who trust in Jesus. But in verse 14, the we is restricted. Right? It's restricted to the visible eyewitness view of Christ, or to put it more precisely, it's restricted to the visible eyewitness view of of, of the glories of who Jesus is as he comes in the flesh. All right. And then if we can just jump ahead into verse 15, uh, this witness element is, is established further through the recounting of John the Baptist's words. That's why uh, part of why John brings John the Baptist in at this point, where he, told, he tells us that John testified, we have another witness word there, John testified concerning Christ and exclaimed, um, he cried out, that's the word there, he proclaimed, he exclaimed, uh, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. That's John's proclamation there. Uh, and, and so in a, in a culture uh, where those who come first, where those who are older, those who are known first, would be more highly thought of. Right? In fact, that even exists here still in our, in our, in our culture. I think back to the, to the teaching profession I was once in, and the teachers who had higher rank got greater privilege. They were there longer. They had more benefits, right? And, and John the Baptist recognizes that's something that's socially going on. So here John is bearing witness to, to Christ saying, even though my immediate ministry might have started before Jesus' immediate uh, physical ministry, 
And you remember that in all the gospel accounts, John went first. That, that was his prophetic role, is to be the forerunner to Christ. So he was not only born before Jesus was born of Mary, uh, but John's ministry began before Jesus. So he was, in a sense, first in that way. But John's witnessing, saying that even though my immediate ministry may have started before Jesus, he still ranks ahead of me because in, in reality, he actually was before me. So John's witnessing to the, to the glories of Christ. John's witnessing to the fact that, 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 that there, there was never a time when Christ was not in that sense. He recognizes the eternality of the Son of God. And so he's, he's bearing witness to that glory. And, and so it's, it's just worth reflecting then on this eyewitness idea for a moment. It's, it's worth pausing and thinking about this because, because it can be something that, that, does, that does trouble us to a certain degree Maybe it's something at least that we've thought about in our Christian lives. We can, we can wonder to ourselves, you know, uh, my belief in Jesus would be so much more sure if I could have just seen him too. Right? If I could have watched him in his ministry, if I could have seen him on the cross, if I could have wa walked in and, and, and beheld the empty tomb, if I could have seen his resurrected body, if I could have watched as he returned in glory to heaven, you know, then my belief would be sturdy. Then I would believe. But we do have to remind ourselves of how God works believing in Jesus in our heart. Um, it's, it's not the physical act of seeing Jesus that causes belief. Right? Judas saw and betrayed. Right? Pilate saw and ignored. Herod saw and he was only curious. The crowd saw and shouted, crucify him. So, so mere seeing is not the way in which believing ultimately is worked in our hearts. Instead, the normal way in which belief is worked in our hearts is through the word. Right? It's, it's through the words of Scripture recorded by these witnesses. Isn't that what John says about his gospel record at the end? These things have been what so that you may believe? Drawn out in pictures? No, these things have been written so that you may believe, right? It's through the written word that we, that we come to belief, uh, to, to, to belief in Jesus. James, he makes the same point in his letter where, where the Lord brings us forth. He births us as believers, not through the seeing is believing process, but God brings us forth by his word of truth. Paul says the same thing to Timothy. It's the scriptures that make you wise to salvation. So we know God is a God of means. And, and, and we can think, oh, if I could have just seen Jesus for myself. But then we remember, seeing is not the regular means of grace God has established for our believing. It's the spirit-attended, inspired word of Scripture, written in part by witnesses like John, eyewitnesses like John, that the Lord works through to bring belief into our hearts. And, and so we recognize the value of those who, who visibly witnessed Jesus' glory. We recognize the value of the truth they recorded for us in the scriptures. This is central and critical. And, and, and at the same time, we, we also see this is very applicable medicine for us at different times in our Christian life. Knowing the Lord works through those witnesses, through the scriptures, as we are brought to see Christ. Because we can feel the weakness of unbelief in our lives at times. Maybe oftentimes we feel that. We feel the weakness of wondering, can all this stuff about Jesus really be true? I'm, I mean, I'm centering the totality of my life on this. Is all this stuff really true? And when that wondering sets in, there is one main prescription. And that is to humbly and prayerfully come under the word of God, to read it, to meditate upon it, consider it together with other Christian believers, and trust that through the truth of the word, 
belief will be established and then reestablished and reestablished and reestablished in our hearts. Right? This is why Sunday we don't just sing. Right? This is why on Sunday we don't just practice the Lord's Supper and baptism. This is why we don't just have fellowship together, but we also do. In fact, the only thing that's physically elevated by furniture in our assembly is, is we pay attention to the scriptures. Right? Because it is through the scriptures that the Spirit of God works to bring about belief in Christ. So what we do is we come under the word. Um, because that, that's, that's the means the Lord works through. And, and so as we think about this witness component, we're very thankful for it. We see the critical nature of this witness in that John's witness is, is an inspired witness to the Lord Jesus that the Spirit of God works through to bring us to faith. We're thankful for the witness, but we're not envious of the eyewitnesses. Right? Jesus himself said it plainly in chapter 20. We'll see this later on. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So, so we, we need the witnesses because through the record of Scripture, like John's Gospel, uh, the Lord works belief in our hearts. We need the witnesses, but we don't need to be the witnesses. Right? In fact, the unique blessing of belief, Jesus says, most commonly attends those who haven't seen. Who haven't. And so we can actually take comfort in that. The life we need in Jesus Christ comes as we attend to, to the scriptural witness that we have written for the purpose of our believing and trusting. So, to start off with here, this idea of seeing, we saw his glory, we beheld his glory, that there's this witness aspect. We, we, saw, we saw this, John is saying. And then from there, John moves to speak in more detail about this, this glory that was seen. So, so they observed Jesus in his earthly ministry, these witnesses, John is saying, but, but, but John puts more words to it than just an observation of Jesus in his ministry. You know, we saw Jesus walking around and doing stuff. He doesn't say that. He puts more words to it than that. And, and, and beginning with the fact he says we observed his glory. His glory. Uh, now, now glory, not least of all the glory of God, the glory of Christ, that kind of divine glory is a theme that runs through our Bible. And we've, we've talked about this many times in the course of our studies, but we know it's rooted in the Hebrew concept of something's weighty worth. Uh, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, the, the root word of, of the Hebrew word for glory speaks to a measurement of weight, which is why we have like Psalm 19, where the heavens declare the glory of God, as if what could we gather up and put in a scale to somehow weigh out the great worthiness of God? Well, how about the totality of creation? We'll take that and we'll weigh it. And there's something that represents uh, the, the greatness of God. There's some small picture of what it's like. Um, and, and, so, and so on the one hand, the magnificence of God, the great worth and weightiness of God, the glory of God, it actually it transcends what our minds can fathom. But here we're told that the glory of Christ has been seen. And in order to help us understand this further, John attaches two descriptions to this glory of Christ. Uh, one has to do with Jesus's uniqueness and the other has to do with Jesus's fullness. Okay, so we're just going to take each of those, each of those in turn. So first, what, what John and others saw of Jesus' glory is attached to, to his uniqueness. Uh, John says, we observed his glory as the one and only son from the father. Uh, so, so here, uh, we're, we're going to talk about uniqueness. And, and with that also is this concept of sonship. Now, th this word son, it just should be said for that makes me feel better to say it out loud, I guess. The, the word son actually isn't in the Greek text in this verse. 
uh, just basically the word that's translated one and only, monogenes is there. Uh, but son isn't there. However, we're going to have to put these things together. It actually appears together with our word later on um, when, when we're reading down in verse 18, where he is the one and only son. And because it's a reference to the father, our translators have put it in just to help clarify what's going on here. So we can refer to it comfortably that way. Uh, but I know there may be one or two of you out there who may be getting fancy with the Greek. And so I just want to say, say that because we need to be careful with these things. Um, but uh, we, we, have to, we have to attach it because there is this notion of sonship represented in, in, the, in the language that's used. So uh, when, when we think about sonship, we have one and only son idea here. When, when we think about sonship, we immediately think in biological or physical created birth kind of categories. Uh, in, in fact, this statement that's translated here, one and only, against monogenes in Greek, it, it can speak to biological sonship. So, for example, in Luke chapter 7, uh, where we read about the widow of Nain weeping over the death of her monogenes son, her one and only son. Uh, and in that case, the terminology is obviously used to speak of biological connection. Uh, but that's not all this word can mean. And, and we have an immediate sense of that even here, because to speak in, in mere biological kind of categories about the Son of God, as if God the Son is a created being by God the Father. Immediately we know we're in wrong territory if we're, if we're doing that. Right? Now, least of all, because John's already told us that Jesus is, in fact, God, and that all things came into being through Him. He's not a created being. He's the creator of all that's ever been created. Right? So, so the Son of God is not a created being. And so immediately we start to think we've got to have categories for this that make sense. And so it helps to consider a fuller range of the kind of language usage that's here, this one and only kind of language. And as we do that, we can come to a place like Hebrews 11, verse 17, where Isaac is described as Abraham's one and only son. Same language as, as what's here. And in that sense, we know something must be different because Isaac was not Abraham's one and only son in a biological birth kind of sense. Abraham also had a son named Ishmael. If you remember the, the darkness of that story, beginning in Genesis chapter 16. And then later in Genesis 25, we actually read about six other sons that, they, that Abraham had as well. Right? But in Hebrews 11, Isaac is described as Abraham's one and only son. And that's because this term here, well, it can refer to one and only in a biological sense. It can also refer to one and only in, a, in an especially unique one of a kind Isaac was Abraham's especially unique, one-of-a-kind son because he was the son that was born according to the promise that God had made to Abraham and Sarah. There's extreme uniqueness there with, with, with Isaac's birth. And here in our verse, it's this unique, one-of-a-kind idea that we're to understand from John. Jesus, as God's one and only son, is especially a reference here to his uniqueness. And we'll talk about even just the sonship aspect in more detail as we get down to verse 18 next week or the week after. Um, but, we, but we have to see John's logic in this because we remember how already in this chapter we've been told that all who believe in Jesus are granted this tremendous position of being children of God. We're all children of God. If you're believing in Jesus, you're a son, you're a daughter of the living God. So, so there's full privilege of access to God the Father. That's yours through Christ. God the Father 
cares for you perfectly. We say with full confidence, I'm his child, you're his child. We have, we have access in prayer. He hears us, he cares for us, he'll never leave you. He, he does that thing that all good dads must do in saying to us, nothing you could ever do could make me stop loving you. Right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Right? He's our perfect father. We're his beloved children, sons and daughters. But there is a distinction in that Jesus is the unique son. In fact, in John's gospel, the term son, it's actually only used for Jesus. So, so when John speaks about seeing the glory of Christ, he begins by defining the uniqueness of what that means and that Christ's glory is manifest in his unique one-of-a-kind status as God the Son. There's, there's superiority attached to that. There's preeminence attached to that. Even though now as believers, we know we're all children of God. We're all granted the immense privilege of, of even just sonship. We talked about that in the sense that salvation inheritance belongs to all of us as God's children. Right? But there is only one, in, uh, one unique son, and, and, and that's, and that's this, this Jesus. And there's weighty worth. There's glory attached to that reality. So if we put that in the context of John's own burden, which is writing this to help us believe in Jesus and find life, we're reminded in this that, that Jesus in his uniqueness is parallel to no other person or thing that we may be tempted to trust in or rely on. And again, we have this flavor coming through here. This is something that will come out in John's writing. But we even have this flavor coming through just with how often he's referenced John the Baptist saying, I'm not the guy. There's always a temptation, always a pull away. It's almost all that thou dost protest too much situation here. John, John is continually having John the Baptist say, I'm not the guy, I'm not the guy. Because we live in a world where there's all kinds of people saying, I'm the guy, I'm the one. There's all kinds of things saying, I'm the one. And what John is helping us understand is that it's not just that life is found in Jesus, but it's that life is found in Jesus and no other. He's monogenes, he's unique, he's one and only. There's no parallel hope to Christ. There's no parallel person to Christ. There's no parallel program to Christ. There's no parallel social or political framework to Jesus. There's, there's never another equal rescuer, restorer, preserver, or, or, or transformational grace giver. There's just one Son of God. And, and so we just reset our hearts by that truth. We bring that to mind again. We, 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 we double check ourselves. Have I been looking for parallels? Those things that, that can seem to kind of run along the same lines as maybe the life that's there in, in, in Christ. These things that are promising me flourishing and these kinds of things. But ultimately, they're not the same. There's a veer off towards darkness and death. Right? Jesus says life is found in him alone. We find ourselves saying, oh, but you know, maybe just a, a brief period of refreshment can come over here away from Christ over in this area. But no, no, he is entirely unique in his personhood and what he offers. There's no other. There's no other. And that's part of Jesus' glory. That's part of what it means that John saw Jesus' glory, the entire uniqueness that's represented in the Lord Jesus. He saw the unique, one-of-a-kind personhood of the Son of God, which, of course, John is going to expand upon in great detail down in verse 18, which we'll get to eventually. But first, uh, we, we, we have seeing Jesus' glory defined by the uniqueness, the one-of-a-kindness of Jesus here. And then as we keep going, we also have glory explained by the fact that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. 
um, glory is attached to Jesus' fullness of these attributes. Now, uh, looking at this, we want to remind ourselves of the, of the context that John is setting for us, and especially in verses 14 to 18 in general. Uh, he's already talked about how Christ is tabernacled among us. So, so there's that allusion to Moses and Israel in the Exodus, like we already mentioned, God dwelling among his people. And then down a couple of verses into verse 17, John's going to refer to Moses again. So the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's huge. But this figure of Moses, the Exodus, it appears prominently in this section. And that's part of what plays into the emphasis here when we consider this language of glory of Christ being on display as Jesus proves to be the one full of grace and truth. So Moses on Mount Sinai, you remember the story, Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's glory. Exodus 33:18. May, may I please see your glory? Right? And the Lord replies, I will cause my, do you remember the word that's used there? I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. That's interesting, isn't it? Just the, that God's glory is his weighty, transcendent worth so much that it takes the entirety of, of creation to try to explain it in places like Psalm 19. And yet as God reveals his glory to Moses, he simply refers to it as his goodness. I'll cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And so what does that goodness look like? Well, as God causes his glory, his goodness to pass by Moses after he's hidden him in the cleft of a rock in that Exodus account, in part, that's manifest as the Lord goes by proclaiming, I am the Lord abounding in faithful love and truth. So it sounds familiar. Let's, let's give that its translation as John sets it up. I am the Lord full of grace and truth. You, you see, it's that language that John picks up on here. John, John and others have, have witnessed the glory of Jesus Christ full, abounding in grace and truth. That's a translation of the language God uses to reveal His goodness, His glory to Moses. I'm the Lord abounding in grace and truth. And, and, and John says, here's the one who gives a picture of that completely. He's coming in, in, in a fullness among us. And one, one writer, just to help us explain things further, this helps, helped us work out what's going on here. He, he says, grace sums up God's attitude to his people and carries the sense of being unwaveringly, mercifully good. Unwaveringly, mercifully good. Mercifully good would be wonderful in and of itself. How about unwaveringly, mercifully good? Never, never changing in his goodness. And truth, he says, includes God's sureness, reliability, firmness, and stability. Just how we can think about those categories. So here's Jesus, God come in the flesh, and John tells us, we saw this, this glory of God. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of the, of the character and personhood of God. We saw grace. So we saw fullness of unwavering mercy and goodness from God when we saw Jesus. And we saw truth. We saw the, the sureness, the reliability, the firmness, the stability of God when we saw Jesus. Jesus is the one full of the goodness of God. He's full of that glory. And so, so we think to ourselves, what did John and others see in Christ that reflected a fullness of grace and truth like this? That unwavering mercy and the total reliability. Well, we see this in, in many ways through the gospel accounts, don't we? Not least of all in the signs that Jesus performs. So think of the signs Jesus performed. We're told that in those signs, Jesus displayed his glory. John, John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and explicitly says the son will be glorified in this. Right? So, so the restorative, 
life-giving mercy that Jesus has on Lazarus' grieving sisters in the context of the death of their brother, the power that Jesus demonstrates over death, brings, bringing the return of life to, to, to Lazarus. John saw that, other disciples saw that, and in that they beheld his glory. What a full expression of unwavering mercy and total reliability to have the one who says, your brother will no longer be dead, actually be able to demonstrate that kind of power. What extraordinary mercy and reliability is that? That's the fullness of God's unwavering mercy and reliability. The first miracle in John's gospel, the turning of water into wine, we're told there, chapter 2, verse 11, that in doing those kinds of signs, Jesus was revealing his glory. So, so you see, as we're reading John's gospel, we're seeing that, that, that whether it's validating the celebration of a wedding ceremony or whether it's bringing someone back from the dead, Jesus is proving to be the one who displays the fullness of God's goodness and his restorative kindness and mercy. Jesus restores the sight of a man born blind in John 9, and he says, here's the reason this took place. So the restorative works of God can be displayed. So you can see them. So John and the others saw the glory of Christ as Jesus demonstrated this kind of power. Jesus' glory, then, is, is his providing and, and, and restoring of people in grace-filled, faithful ways. This is the unwavering mercy of Christ and his total reliability, which is an extraordinary thing for us to know about Jesus. This is who he is in his, in his incarnation. This is who he is in his resurrected, ascended, and returning personhood. He is the one who is full of unwavering mercy. He is the one who is full of total reliability. Oh, Lord, I may have gone too far this time in the sins I have committed. I feel far from you. I feel weak. I feel as though I can't return because these things are so horrendous. And he says, oh, you haven't understood my glory. You haven't actually understood the, the bigness of my weighty worth. I am the one who is absolutely full of unwavering mercy for just a person like you. Or we may be going off in another direction and we think, you know, I, you say these things, Lord Jesus, about the future hope that's mine and the fact that all that's been broken and hard in my life, the defeat that I face, these things, ultimately I look forward to res restoration and new life and upon your return. And, and, and you say that, but I just don't, I just don't know if that can really be the case. It all seems so low. I'm thinking about just, just forgetting the whole thing. And Jesus says, oh, but you, that's just because you haven't understood my glory. You haven't understood the weighty worth of who I am. You haven't understood that, that not only am I the one unwavering in mercy, but I am the one of, uh, who, who en encapsulates, who is full of the absolute faithfulness of God. I'm the one who is totally and completely reliable and the things I say will come to pass. And so as we think about these things, they help frame our own appreciation, our own comprehension of who this one is whom we're called to believe in. He is full of unwavering mercy. He's full of absolute reliability and faithfulness. This is, who, this is who Jesus is for us. And then as we think about this glory, we just have one other thing we have to notice. And that while, while, there, while this glory is demonstrated in things like the signs that Jesus performed, people, people saw that and were, were affected by that glory. In, in John's gospel, there is one central amazing truth about Jesus' glory and that the glory of Christ, the grace and truth of Christ, his, his unwavering mercy and his total reliability, they don't climax in, in the healing of a man born blind. They don't climax even in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But instead, the glory of Christ climaxes in his cross. So just listen to this from John chapter 12. Jesus says, The hour has come. 
for the Son of Man, which is the way he references himself. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And he goes on to say, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The glory of Christ and the impending shame and pain of the cross. And, 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 this, is, and this is punctuated in the reality that Jesus will prove himself to be ultimately faithful, ultimately reliable, and ultimately the fountainhead of all mercy in the fact that he's the one who will go to the cross and bear the burden of the sins of all who will believe in him. That This is the climax of Christ's glory in that he takes the weight of our sin upon his shoulders and brings us to a place of redeemed eternal life forevermore. This is why life is found in his name. Not just because he can make a blind man see, not just because he can turn water into wine and up the celebration at a wedding. No, life is found in Jesus' name because ultimately he's done what's necessary to rescue us from condemnation and eternal death and bring us to a place of eternal life looking forward to a new creation in his presence forever. This is why life is found in his name. And the glory of that reality is that in the shame of the cross, that is what he shouldered and purchased for us. And so when we come to Christ, we come to one not only who is one who is unwaveringly merciful and truthful in all the events of our daily life as we think about what it means to follow him and be faithful to him, but we also come to the one who has solidified once and for all our eternal position as children of God looking forward to a redeemed eternity because of his faithfulness and mercy expressed in the glory of the low-down cross. And of course, that's right at the center of the gospel. This is why we trust in him. This is why we're ultimately believing in him because the death I deserve to die, I will not die because Jesus took that in my place. The great glory of that truth is that life is mine through Christ. And so as a result of that, I am in this place compelled to worship him, to live for him, to trust in him. So we, can, we consider all this and we see John's witnessing to the glory of Jesus. We're thankful for the witness because through the record of a witness like John, we're brought to trust in Jesus. And, and Christ is the one worthy of all our trust. Because in him, the fullness of God's character dwells and is proved as he extends the compassion we need, purchasing life for us at the cost of his own life and humiliation and pain. That is, that is his glory. And we respond by saying, you do have the words of eternal life and we will trust you. So the hymn goes, Thou art the everlasting word, the Father's only Son, God manifestly seen and heard. Just read those first three lines again. That's really something to put together. Thou art the everlasting word, the Father's only Son, God manifestly seen and heard, and heaven's beloved one. What's the conclusion of the, of the verse then? Worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou that every knee to thee should bow. And that's where we end. Worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou that every knee to thee should bow. So we find ourselves in that place of thankful praise and wonder, turning to Christ and placing our full trust in him. Let's pray. This is our prayer, Lord Jesus, uh, simply to say to you that you are worthy of our trust and we bow our knee to you. You're the one who's come. You're the one who's full of grace and truth. There is no other. We place our entire hope and life in your hands, knowing that you are the one who is faithful and true to preserve us 
And not just to preserve us in this life as, as a child of the living God, but as the one who will preserve us into life eternal. And we rest in that promise of constant and everlasting care. So we pray this morning you would renew that truth in our hearts. Lift us up. Help us believe. We know we need your help to believe. And it's through your word that we, that we seek a right understanding of who you are and what it means to know you. So help us to this end uh, for the sake of your glory. Amen.